Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Psychiatria, the show where we explore true healing and everything that might mean. I am Danny, your host, guide, and fellow human on this journey. And today I'm talking with Dr. Elena Toscanis. She is one of our psychiatrists here with Free Range Psychiatry. And she has always loved stories, as she will tell you about. And that is really what shapes our conversation today. We discussed the power of individual narratives, the value of finding meaning in them, what happens when we recognize our ability to choose within these narratives, and the vitality of acknowledging these stories in the healing process and how important that is. But before we get started with the episode, a funny thing happened in the beginning of our conversation. Elena mentions how she ended up on a panel discussion with Dr. Kendra Campbell and how that was her entrance into free range. So when I was editing this episode, I realized that many of you may not know who Kendra is. Well, she is the founder, the mastermind, the inspiration behind Free Range Psychiatry. She is the reason the practice exists, the one who brought me on as an intern last year and subsequently brought all of us together. It is her creative support, trust in me, and desire to see me do what I love that enables this podcast to exist. And I know her and I will have many conversations on Psychiatria, and I cannot wait for y'all to meet her. So without further ado, back to today's episode, and uh, let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Elena. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yay. So, um... You are a psychiatrist with us at Free Range Psychiatry, and I will let you kind of do your own little intro. So why don't you tell the listeners just a quick um, quick little intro to yourself? Sure. Um, my name's Elena Toscanis. I'm a general adult psychiatrist, and I started with Free Range actually just a few months ago. Um, Mm -hmm. I heard of free range through a wonderful and a good friend of mine who had met up with Kendra Campbell and had heard of her. And he sort of connected me to Kendra through a panel discussion that we both participated in. And so after that, uh, Kendra and I stayed connected and I ended up learning more about free range and deciding that it would be a good correct, uh, kind of direction in which to take my career. And so here I am. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, I'm curious, like how, how have your first couple of months with free range been? I know that you're sort of just starting to see patients. Um, but yeah, what have, what have your initial impressions of being a holistic psychiatrist been? So I am very grateful for the opportunity to delve deeper into this niche of holistic psychiatric care. I've been interested in it for quite a long time. And finding a practice that is solely dedicated to it was a surprise um, and a Mm. wonderful one. Uh, Prior to learning of free range, I had been taking a break from working. Uh, My family and I spent 
almost six months in Lithuania in Eastern Europe, which is where my family is from. Mm -hmm. uh, we took a family sabbatical, so to speak. Um, and living there really opened my eyes to a different cultural experience of medicine in general. Um, and I was reminded that a lot of folks there just have more holistic ideas about mental health in general as part of culture. It's just part of daily life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that they're a little less uh, likely to seek out typical psychiatric care um, in terms of medications and what we're more used to here in the United States. So it seemed, it seemed like out there they would tend to look to community or sometimes even things like herbal remedies first uh, before deciding to connect with a more traditional psychiatrist. And when I say traditional, I mean mm -hmm. traditional in sort of the Western sense. And that was interesting to me to see that and watch that. And it led to just more reflection, personal reflection upon how I would like my career to look upon our return. So it was a good break for me mm -hmm. to, to think that through and and uh, mm -hmm. decide that perhaps there could be an opportunity in the U.S. to function in a little more of that direction. Um, so that's kind of mm -hmm. how I started thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. I love that story. I, I remember when we had talked about this previously, you had told sort of us, the free range group, uh, in a meeting about like your fascination over there with men who drink tea. Yes. <laughs> This sort of phrase, like, you know, hashtag men who drink tea is <laughs> exactly is this sort of uh, exactly. Yeah. And uh, that I came across that multiple times and it was just so embedded in the daily life of the folks who live there that, of course, nobody mm -hmm. batted an eyelash when, you know, dad or male friends or whoever would go to a restaurant and specifically ask, you know, what types of herbal teas were on the menu and I loved that. And it wasn't something that mm -hmm. I ran into here almost ever. So this idea of like, why is that? I mean, obviously we, they grow up drinking tea. It's a, it's a little bit of a different um, experience culturally, culturally around beverages, but it does stem from um, a longstanding notion that there are certain ingredients in the tea that could help with different ailments or just help you relax or whatever in a way that I think is still really logical to them and uh, kind of surprising mm -hmm. to us. So Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But absolutely, when you take a minute to, to think about it, the history behind, you know, herbs and, and things like that, which you can use in many different ways, but teas, I think, is one of the most common ones. Is It's a rich history, and there are a lot of different cultures that utilize that. Um, but yeah, so I sort of want to go, go back in time. And uh, I am curious what got you into psychiatry in the first place. Um, even before you started thinking about holistic psychiatry and, and what that might look like? That is a great question, and it's been fun to consider it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And as I've been asked that same question at different points in my life and in different points in my career, and I'm fascinated by how the answer shifts sort of based on where mm. I am. Um, but however, I think that one of the roots, if we want to use the word root, one of the root causes for mm -hmm. my interest in psychiatry does stem back to my own experience as a child. Um, and I grew up in a family of immigrants. So both of my parents immigrated from Lithuania to escape Soviet occupation after the Second World War. And they eventually mm -hmm. settled in the Chicago area where there was a real thriving and large Lithuanian immigrant community. So there were a lot of folks similar to my family 
in my neighborhood as I was growing up. And even though they had experienced real significant trauma related to the war, the sort of attitude that was expressed to us was one of sort of picking yourself by picking yourself up by your bootstraps, starting over, um, making it, being successful. Uh, the the notion, of course, of kind of creating a life that could be better for your kids than the one that you had had. And that didn't leave a whole lot of room for appearing to be vulnerable, or at least in my family, that yeah. didn't leave a lot of room for being open to discussions around emotions that felt big or maybe kind of scary or things like that. It was, it was better to do things the right way, make sure you didn't stick out in the crowd. And I think that had a lot to do with what it took to leave and what it took to survive, right? Yeah, um, I think that's sort of the, the classic American immigrant story, you know, or at least so we learn in school and stuff like that. But yeah, that is a very, um, it makes sense. And I think like I've heard in a lot of different ways from different people and there's movies and TV shows and whatever about it. Um, where it just that narrative per se um, is something that one has to almost cling to 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 make it as you say to make this huge transition to move to a new country to you know for yeah after having experienced so much and then going into a place that's hard in a different way yeah 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 exactly and the I think that in part because a lot of those discussions weren't sort of out in the open in my family. I turned to stories of other people that I could relate to. So as a child, I was definitely into reading a lot. And the stories that I was drawn to were stories of usually young people like kids or teenagers who were able to overcome something really significant. And I don't think I realized at the time that I was searching for a story that was similar to my own potentially or to my parents, but those are the ones I was really drawn to. Um, so for example, like I was very interested in Anne Frank and her story that was incredibly mm. interesting and compelling to me, this young woman who lived through this incredibly intense and ultimately tragic experience, but was able to express herself so beautifully throughout that. I was impressed with her and I may be searching for my own words in a way too, and, and experiencing some of my own emotions through hers. Um, I loved the Little House on the Prairie series, you know, the Laura Ingalls mm -hmm. and her family traveling across yeah. the country and managing these intense stressors, but somehow being a kid you know, being a kid, but having to manage all of that at the same time, those were really compelling to me. Mm -hmm. Another one that was a real favorite of mine was by an author named Cynthia Voigt. She wrote a book called Homecoming. And that book was about a 12-year-old girl and her three younger siblings who were abandoned by their mom, who was severely mentally ill. They were abandoned in a parking lot in their mm -hmm. car. And then the whole, the book is about how this, the main character, the protagonist is able to care for her three younger sibs as they search for a relative that they end up living with. So I was very, very interested in stories of resilience, like kids who are overcoming something big and how they got through it. And I imagined myself maybe like, what would I do in those kinds of situations? What could I do? Um, and I, and it was the beginning of really a lifelong love affair with this idea that we each have our own story to tell. 
We each have yeah. um, challenges that we face in our lives. And each of us is equipped in a different way to try to face them, overcome them, or manage them. And I think that mm -hmm. the field of psychiatry really is in a big way about exactly that. You know, the mm -hmm. a person who has uh, faced a specific challenge or is in a place in their life where they want to connect with someone else as a sounding board, um, as uh, a companion on this journey to try to uncover their own resilience mm -hmm. um, and their ability to improve the quality of their lives in some sort of way. So that's kind of how yeah. I, I, I began to see psychiatry as a field. Oh, man, I love that. I love that. Um... I mean, this is your story, right? Or this is a bit of it. This is a part of it. Um, yeah. Sometimes when, uh, well, like when we when we think about this notion of everybody has a life, everybody has a story, and you can walk around and like look at people on the streets and be like, oh my gosh, this person has an entire life, like decades of life, usually. Uh, unless it's a little kiddo um, behind them that they've experienced that has made them who they are. And uh, just the sheer magnitude of that, you know, it's easy to walk down the street and see a face, but it's hard to walk down the street and see people, see a person. Um, and there's actually, there's this thing, and I think this is where the word comes from. Um, it's called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And I believe it was started by this guy who just sort of started making up words for things that didn't have names, you know, especially in, I feel like the English language kind of lacks in, in a lot of things like that. Um, but Sonder is the word for this sort of notion that every person you meet has a unique story all their own and a unique life all their own. Uh, and I, I think that that is so, such a powerful notion. Um, and as you say, is so key to, to mental health, to psychiatry. And, and definitely, I want to sort of put this caveat in here too, like mainstream westernized psychiatry, as we often see it today, does not often acknowledge that but sort of what we're trying to do here what holistic psychiatry and free range are aiming for does um that story that individual the person is is the point like the important thing uh to us so yeah i agree it's a very fresh perspective um especially in our current system. Um, I think that if we take a close look at the system as a whole, it's so much about the notion of an external figure, uh, i.e. the doctor, the provider, um, who then provides a directive to the patient to follow. And I think in psychiatry, that is particularly complicated because there's really no such thing as a one-size-fits-all, and we talk about that all the time. Um, yet, in that relationship, I believe that the, the patient or the client really is some, you know, there's somebody who's suffering, who's in pain, who is looking for some advice or some directives. Um, and we have built a system around those directives being kind of simple, 
or we want them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. The, and I think some of my colleagues have already mentioned, you know, we there there is a desire uh, for the directive to be something simple such as, you know, take this medication and uh, you will probably feel better or you are likely to feel better. And that there I think there's a real desire for people to hear that, that that if I only did this, then the end result would be an increased level of comfort or an increased level of happiness, however you want to define it, um, an increased sense of safety or whatever, however we look at it, because this person has told me that that should be true. Um, And when we're feeling bad, when we're feeling our worst, when we're very vulnerable, there's, I think there really is a, a desire for that. And what we've seen happen in psychiatry, if we use that model, is that the, you know, in reality, in people's lived experiences, we see over and over again, that that's not really what happens, you know, that if we, Mm -hmm. if we believe that the simple fix is the one that should solve everything, we come up frustrated and disappointed. Mm -hmm. And then that potentially in our current system can lead to things like um, adding another medication to somebody's regimen. That's like in real time, what sort of happens, right? Because the, the psychiatrist, the provider, much of the time doesn't have the time, uh, you know, the, the resources to, to dive a little bit deeper, to get a little un, more under the surface uh, and to mm-hmm. identify um, why it is that, the, you know, that this person is still not feeling as well as they should. So the, this a model of a more holistic approach, I think really pays a lot of respect to the complexity of the situation in a way that the current system sometimes just isn't able to, not for lack of desire on the part of a lot of providers, you know, not for lack of desire on the part of the patient, not for lack of good intention, but the the structure itself is one in which it's quite difficult to really take a deeper dive if that's what the patient feels they would benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I think there are so many interesting things to say in this vein that really sort of get into like the history of psychiatry and why it is the way that it is. Um, there's a lot of interesting, I think Robert Whitaker is sort of the big writer. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but he's one of the guys who writes about it. Um, and he's got a book that I'll, I'll link in the show notes that I know free range is a big fan of. And, uh, yeah, there's, uh, so all that to say is we'll definitely be talking further about, this more in-depth history of psychiatry and sort of the explanation of of why why (laughs) in in a future episode for sure um but yeah that's uh is one of my like core beliefs that has sort of fueled this podcast is that people like doctors go into psychiatry people seek psychiatrists because they want healing like they want to be heard they want to be understood they want to be helped but the way that the system is as you say is not equipped to do that Um, and it's so easy to victimize and villainize is that a word make make the psychiatrist the villains and um and a lot of it's just like not personally their fault they're doing the best they can with what they have um but we're trying to create something better so yeah um so we've talked a bit about your 
your childhood, like your mindset, the things that you're curious about and sort of how this idea of, of being really fascinated with narratives um, led you into thinking about psychiatry as a field, but what was your experience in the like educational path? Because I know that's usually um, a lot of interesting things can happen in those years for psychiatrists. Oh, definitely. Um, when I was in college, I was not aware that medical school would be in my path at all. I, I wasn't thinking that I was um, somebody that was particularly good at the hard sciences. Uh, I was mm-hmm. pretty, I would say, like psychologically oriented or psychologically minded uh, from the very beginning. Um, and that that makes sense based on what I've already said. Uh, and the the path I decided to take in college was to major in linguistics. Um, I had been mm. speaking Lithuanian my whole life, so I was a bilingual person. And um, I, you know, I do think that people's, you know, people's native language says so much about them and their experience. And I was really interested in learning a little bit more about that and uh, delving into several the study of several foreign languages and then more of the theoretical basis behind linguistics as well as some of the science, you know, the sort of physiological um, nuts and bolts around it as well. And what I ended up doing at the end of um, my college years and my senior year, I worked with a researcher who was looking at young children with autism. And as part of my uh, bachelor's thesis in linguistics, I worked with her to study the vocalizations of kids who had autism, who were pre-linguistic, who couldn't speak yet. And I got to learn a lot more about child psychiatry just by virtue of having done that. Mm. And um, I I could feel myself just sort of my own interests, my own passions shifting away from languages per se and more towards um, children who, again, it's like these children who are facing challenges, you know, these families of children with autism. Mm. I started working with a family as a tutor with a young child who had autism. And it was sort of like, Sure, in, in my experience, it's like, sure, the, this person has been diagnosed with something, but what I really want to learn about is like the kid and the family and the parents and how they're managing all of it and mm. how I can make a difference or not. So I started feeling myself turning away from linguistics as an academic uh, subject and more towards uh, families of kids who had struggles uh, and how they sort of overcame them. And that, and I headed in that way. And at that point, I thought, okay, well, maybe I could go to social work school, maybe work with families as a social worker, maybe pursue a degree in psychology um, and become a therapist or, or potentially even uh, continue on in academics and psychology, maybe get a PhD or something like that. And what I ended up doing was getting a master's degree in education. And uh, my first job out of school after that was as a therapist and like curriculum developer for a child partial hospital. So this was in Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, I arrived on the scene where this uh, program was being built um, and I was in charge to create a curriculum for kids who were there because somebody had referred them either uh, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a preschool, a Head Start program or something like that. And I enjoyed that experience. But again, the nuts and bolts of like school or curriculum curriculum wasn't what was driving me. It was more like the stories of the kids and the families and what they were doing. And so I felt like I was slightly missing my mark, you know, even though I was enjoying what I was doing, I had Mm. slightly missed the mark um, with what was igniting my passion. Getting closer. Yes, absolutely. So with each successive step, I felt like I was getting closer to where I felt like I really wanted to be. And as I was getting older and maturing more in my own personal life, um, my interest started expanding more into like the developing person as opposed to children. I felt like initially uh, my focus as a younger mm-hmm. person was more 
on kids or maybe my own peer group, you could say. And then as I was getting older, um, my uh, views expanded more into uh, developing the developing human, you know, as, as people get older mm -hmm. throughout the lifespan, I had become pretty good friends with the child psychiatrist who consulted with us at the preschool that I worked. And I learned more about her job and what she got to do for a living. And that's when I really shifted towards thinking that I could go back and complete the courses, basically in the hard sciences that I didn't take uh, to be able to apply to medical school. And interestingly, one of the uh, reasons that I chose uh, medical school and psychiatry instead of pursuing a more academic career in psychology was because at the time I was very interested, I became very interested in psychopharmacology. Uh, the kids who had attended the preschool where I worked, many of them were on a psychotropic because of their behavioral problems. Mm. Um, and back then it was a little less common to do that. So the kids who were who were in the program that I was in were the ones who were on the more severe end of, of the behavior scale and, you know, had been determined that they mm -hmm. could use this help for whatever reason. And my own personal ideas about psychotropics and medication have shifted a lot since then. But that was one of the reasons I thought, okay, if I do psychiatry, if I go to medical school, I'll be able to be a player as far as the uh, medication uh, aspect is concerned as well. So that was one of the reasons why I chose medical school instead of graduate school in psychology. Hmm. So I entered medical medical school thinking I'll be a psychiatrist. I wasn't I wasn't thinking that I would do something else in medicine. Hmm. That's cool. I I did not know that your your background in that was so rooted in in the kiddos and children. Um I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So one of the other big things that I like to talk with you guys about our our psychiatrists in these conversations is holistic practices, you know, because that is one of the things that we are all about here at Psychiatria. Um, and I have a hunch based on conversations we've had in the past that the things you've done that can fall in the the realm of holistic practices may be different than um things we've heard in the past or yeah so why don't you go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about about that what what are the things that you've done in your life that have helped to create some space for you to give you peace to ground you to open you up um yeah so as i was reflecting on these kinds of questions i really thought of my mom so my mom comes up in my memory mm -hmm. as somebody who even without sort of realizing it helped point me in that direction um she mm -hmm. was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer right before i got into medical school and at the time i didn't realize that that type of diagnosis was kind of as scary as I learned mm. that it was. Anyway, I, you know, I did a lot of reading about it. The the prognosis wasn't very good. We we all came to the understanding that that um, there was a good chance that she wasn't going to be with us for a whole heck of a lot longer. And she herself began listening to guided visualization, like meditation tapes. Um, and I heard my colleague Jennifer mentioned the cassette tape in an earlier interview. And that's so that's yeah. what my mom was doing. Um, and it, and she had dabbled in some relaxation techniques herself, even before this diagnosis. But once she became sick, it was something that she really prioritized. 
And at that time in my life, I hadn't thought of that as a way to sort of assist somebody in managing something difficult, but it really helped her a lot. It really made a big difference to her. Um, and later, she picked up a book by a oncologist named Bernie Siegel, uh, which some of your listeners may have heard of. I mean, he's he's quite old now, but he was one of these pioneers of holistic care when it came to cancer. And he himself is a pediatric oncologist. And he wrote a couple of books about the mind-body connection as it was related to the treatment of cancer patients and the, the mm-hmm. children and families that he treated. And this book made a huge impact on my mom and she passed it along to me and it made a huge impact on me. At the time I was a uh, preparing for medical school, I had gone through the rigor of these hard science classes preparing me to apply. And I was very much in a kind of stricter allopathic science-based mode of thinking about a lot of illness, medicine, you know, even mental health at that point in my life. And her sharing those practices in that book with me opened the door a tiny bit. It was like this door cracked open and this light show started shining through that maybe there's more to all of this than I had thought. Um, Maybe there's Mm -hmm. more to healing than what science has taught me. Uh, Maybe there's more to the experience of illness than what I can read about in a pathophysiology book or something like that. Uh, this, This notion that an individual who experiences a diagnosis or illness is going to have their own lived experience about it and will have the capability to choose what direction to go in as far as how to manage it and heal to the extent that they can, I suppose. Um, When my mom gave me that book, I I became very hopeful that maybe a miracle, sort of miracle would happen because the the stories in that book really do sometimes highlight these unbelievable outcomes that this doctor had. And when I mentioned these topics to my mom, it wasn't like she thought, this is going to save me, but she understood that this was meaningful, that the whole thing was meaningful, that her illness was meaningful, that the symptoms were meaningful, that um, how she was learning to uh, experience it was meaningful. That piece was new to me. That was not something that I had garnered from a book or I had learned from the stories that I had been reading up until that point. And so that sort of uh, opened the window or opened the door a crack to to the potential for uh, a broader understanding of holistic care, holistic practice. So after that point, from time to time, I would dabble in some meditation. That was the first thing that that I discovered, um, especially Mm -hmm. visual meditation, like a a guided visual meditation was one of the first things Mm -hmm. that that I leaned into. And over the years, I wouldn't say that it ever became a practice that was daily, um, but I knew that I could go back to it and that I always found it helpful and appealing and interesting and something that I felt was beneficial to me. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, I love, I love that connection with, with your mom's story and, and her her journey and like the things that she kind of discovered and shared with you. Um, so yeah, has meditation, as far as the things that have 
stuck with you and like that you've kind of carried through in these years um what 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 are those things has meditation been one of the main ones um have there been any other ones that you've sort of discovered on your own or or through other people yes definitely uh meditation has always been a significant one for me um another one that's closely related is uh progressive muscle relaxation. So I had learned Mm -hmm. in medical school that there are certain things, obviously, that physiologically result from feeling anxious, you know, like, uh, and of course, we we learn that. And, um, and then in in residency and in psychiatry, of course, you're trained to, to talk to patients about the fact that you can't, it's impossible to be anxious and relaxed at the same time. Um, And uh, as they as they like to say at my alma mater at the University of Chicago. That's all fine in theory, but what about in practice, right? Um, in mm. my own therapy on that, on my own personal journey, I was taught uh, how to actually experience that, which is if you, you know, if you are feeling anxious, there are practices you can use, very physical ones uh, related to muscle mm-hmm. relaxation that then can help the anxiety level decrease. I'm oversimplifying it by explaining it that way, but that has been very helpful to me. This idea that, okay, I'm going to connect my body to my mind now and go Mm -hmm. through the practice Mm -hmm. of um, relaxing. I can actually do that. You know, if I, if I need to do that, I can learn how to do that. Um, And uh, it really does help a significant amount. Um, And so even before I had thought that I could practice as a holistic psychiatrist per se, that was something that I had learned how to do for myself and uh, realized mm. some of the benefits of that. Um, another piece for me that that has been significant for most of my life is being outdoors, um, being outside, being in some fresh air, getting some sunshine. Um, I've been somebody who's really loved to be barefoot. I like to spend as much time barefoot as I can, either on a beach or oh, yeah. you know, in the sand, in the dirt, on the beach, on the grass, wherever I am, I try to do that. Um, we know I'm a supporter. Absolutely, of that. absolutely. So, <laughs> so, and you know, physical exercise has always been a big part of my life. Um, I grew up playing tennis. I play tennis on my high school team, and it's something that I still love to do. So that mm-hmm. has always been a go back to, you know, if I, if I experience myself as being in my own head too much, which is pretty easy for me to be, then one of the best ways to ground mm-hmm. myself is literally to do that, to be on the ground with bare feet or, <laughs> you know, uh, swimming or playing a sport or even just taking a walk or sitting, whatever it is, um, those. Mm-hmm. And I feel like these are such simple concepts. I, they're such simple concepts, but ones that we can really easily forget in sort of the busy pace mm-hmm. of our lives. So, yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, gosh, just to sort of um, not, I don't know, share my thoughts on it. Uh, you're stuck in your head, your thoughts are swimming, which is something that like I've experienced. I'm sure many of the, the listeners have experienced. Um, one of the best ways that I've also found to help with that is to sort of say, okay, my mind is like doing its thing right now. I cannot like tell my thoughts to just stop. Um, I could practice my meditation. I can sort of like sit and just observe them and try to detach, but that can be challenging, especially in the moment. Um, So let's use one of the other main tools that I have, which is my body. And it can often feel, I think, like 
anxiety and those thoughts like that can feel very complex, right? It feels like things are just sort of all tangled up and um, they're right. It seems intuitively uh, and maybe surface level intuition, like we must fix complex problems with complex solutions. And uh, often the practices that utilize the mind-body connection are not that way. It is like, here's a problem that feels complex, whether or not it is or isn't, and let's address it with a very simple solution. So like, okay, your thoughts are twirling around, things are happening in your mind, go put your feet on the grass and see what happens. Like, go for a swim, go play tennis with your neighbor or whatever it may be. Yeah, I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to what your experience is like per se so like you're feeling some way something's happening you're like okay I need to do something and then you choose to go outside to move your body to meditate um I'm kind of want to want to hear a little bit about your personal experience with that sort of process in my own personal experience what very commonly happens is I start to think on something and that can very quickly snowball uh, in my own mm. mind where it it turns into whatever the thought was, it sort of then very quickly can turn into uh, a problem uh, or maybe my perception that it's a problem or then this idea that I've got a problem uh, gets turned into uh, a catastrophic sort of problem, you know, I, I can easily catastrophize. So I can, I can start with some small mm-hmm. kernel of something. And then, you know, depending on where I am, um, or the day that I'm having, it can snowball pretty quickly. And then I will end up in a catastrophic scenario. So I think, I think this is, you, it can be a blessing or a curse. I've got a great imagination. Uh, so sometimes I can use that mm-hmm. to my advantage, depending on what, uh, what, if, if I'm creating something, if I'm being creative or playing with children or whatever, that can be a wonderful, wonderful gift. Um, on the other hand, uh, it can also work to my detriment because I can involve myself in these imagined scenarios that uh, are pretty pretty intense or pretty scary or pretty frightening pretty quickly. And um, mm-hmm. if I can catch myself in one of the very valuable tools that, that I have learned over the course of my life is to catch myself, this idea of being an observer, right? to be able mm. to step away from your thinking as the observer and catch yourself. Uh, that yeah. in and of itself helps. If I can catch myself, then maybe I can, in that moment, redirect myself uh, and as a very compassionate, you know, my, as, a, as a version of my higher compassionate self, catch myself mm-hmm. in, that, in that spin, for lack of a better term, and remember that I can choose something else in that moment. Um, so I can choose maybe to listen to a meditation. I can choose to open the window or open the door. I can choose to step outside. Um, and in our busy, busy lives, in our overscheduled lives, I, I, I'm somebody who is pretty typical among a lot of physicians where 
I'm pretty driven. I'm pretty motivated. So I tend to overschedule and I have to be careful of that. But remembering that I can always choose. I can observe. I can sort of step back, catch it, and choose to engage in mm. something that may really help in the moment. And remember, you know, the sort of adage that this too shall pass, that, that whatever is coming up for me, uh, these feelings, these sensations, whatever that may be, <clears throat> I can choose to feel them and redirect, right? Like I can choose to walk outside. I can choose to whatever it is I'm going to do. <clears throat> but the, the moment of catching myself is significant because if I uh, am not aware, then I get stuck. You know, then I, mm -hmm. I spend too much time sort of spinning. Um, <clears throat> and reclaiming that awareness is, I think, a, uh, an important, a very, very important step to remember that yeah. we can choose if we if we catch ourselves mm -hmm. if we become aware yeah i love the language that you've just put to this process um this the sort of 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 catching yourself and catching yourself almost it feels like a very like loving kind compassionate word right because some i mean if you even imagine yourself spinning like you can fall down the rabbit hole of of circular thoughts and, and anxiety and things like that. And then just kind of like, there is your compassionate self saying like, hey, I got gotcha. you. How about we do something else? <laughs> how, you know, how about we, we make a decision, we choose. And I think that that ability to empower ourselves to make a different choice um, or just to make a choice, you know, at all in that moment is really really cool um i think that's that's an idea that has sort of been coming up in my my personal life lately is just sort of saying like i i can choose i can make a choice like and it may not be the choice it may not be the best choice but it will be my choice and uh that can kind of leads into some other some other topics for another day but i i, I love that i love that a lot i think it for me and I've heard it described this way, and I felt that this this sort of description was very compelling, that in those moments where we can observe, it's almost as if we allow ourselves to step into sort of the adult version of ourselves, as you had mentioned the word compassion, mm -hmm. sort of the compassionate adult version of ourselves. We can observe <laughs> the sort of patterns or programming or issues or whatever, maybe from a, the very distant past. It's like we can step out of it and observe it and say, gosh, this version of me is really struggling right here, right now. How can the adult mm -hmm. me remind her that she has the capability to choose um, mm -hmm. and, and to make yeah. a, a compassionate choice for whatever that version of her needs in the moment? Like remembering that mm -hmm. we, have, we have some power to instill a sense of safety within ourselves. That, that's yes. a powerful thought. Um, and is one that I find very compelling. Yeah, yeah. And this, so this will come out after my episode with Anya Nyson all about trauma and childhood trauma. And one of the things that we talk about in the episode is reparenting, um, which is precisely what you just described. So yeah, if you haven't listened to that episode with Anya yet, definitely check it out because that 
we talk very much in depth about things like this. Um, yeah, very cool, very cool. So one of the things that I like to ask, ask you guys, ask our psychiatrists in these conversations where we're just sort of, we're sort of getting to know you, I, I like to ask, what has your overarching takeaway been from leading your life in a more holistic way, from asking these questions and learning these things and doing this work and this growth? That's a, that is a very thought-provoking question, but also an important one because yeah. it, it helps us mm-hmm. to reflect upon why we're passionate about this direction. Um, I think that for me, the understanding that it's sort of a misnomer to, to really believe that there is an easy or a quick fix for any part of our human experience. Um, that mm. that the complexity of our lives and our feelings and emotions, for the most part, don't need to be pathologized in a certain way. Like there's this, there is this uh, tremendous continuum of what it means to be human uh, and what it means to have and experience human emotions. And that supporting that journey um, can lead to, you know, evolution or greater appreciation uh, for our individual lives. Um, So I think that my own mindset has shifted away from a paradigm of like suppression of what we tend to label as symptoms, either suppression or elimination. Mm. I've moved away from that Mm -hmm. more towards uh, a curiosity and exploration of what those mean to an individual person and how they can sort of transform those experiences into um, a more satisfying experience of their life as they move forward, right? So um, Mm -hmm. challenging the need for elimination and instead accepting or reclaiming this idea that if we move through it and get to the other side, then there's some, Mm -hmm. there's evolution that can take place. Um, And I feel, I feel that there's a lot of room. There's, there's more room now for that kind of thinking. And I'm, it's my hope that we continue to sort of move in that direction. Um, I feel like that direction is one of, of honoring and respecting individual narrative as well. And mm-hmm. and it's not to say that there is a denial of difficulty of challenge and of suffering because difficulty, challenge, and pain, maybe not necessarily suffering, but pain is, is uh, you know, those are all unavoidable human sort of experiences. Um, mm-hmm. And looking at them as opportunities, as opposed to things to be eliminated, I think is, is a great challenge for the future as we move into a more sophisticated understanding of of healing and mental health itself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. beautiful words very well said very well said and I, i think that that rings very true to the the mission that i have here with the podcast with psychiatria and just being curious about the experience and what there is to learn there regardless of how how hard it is how challenging it is so absolutely yeah well um this has been a really lovely conversation just a really beautiful i think i've been smiling the whole time (laughs) 
Um, I've so loved hearing you tell these stories about yourself and about your family and about your life and experiences. And uh, I look forward to having you on the show again soon. Oh, absolutely. I've had a, I've had a really good time and it's, it's been very useful to, to think back and remember some of these pivotal moments mm. and sort of honor them for, for what they were and, and know that there will be many more to come as time goes on. So I really yes. appreciate this opportunity. For sure. Thank you so much, Elena. Anytime, Danny. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, dear listeners. And before I give you the usual spiel, if you happen to be looking for a holistic psychiatrist and thought that Elena sounded pretty cool, she is accepting new patients. So you can head to our website, which is freerangepsych.org, also linked in the show notes, and book a free 15-minute phone call with her there. As you know, Free Range is the reason this podcast is possible. It's a nonprofit holistic psychiatry practice, and I am constantly amazed by the work happening here. Our psychiatrists see patients all over the country. We've just started several support groups. And if you're curious about any of that, you want to get involved, uh, reach out to me. Or you can head to the website, which again, freerangepsych.org. Okay, so back to the episode. You can find links to the books and things we spoke about in the show notes. If you have questions, thoughts, feedback, anything you want to share with us and potentially hear Elena and I discuss in future episodes, please do so. You can send me an email at podcast at freerangepsych.org or message me on Instagram at Psychiatria Podcast. Uh, be sure to follow us there. I post updates about the new episodes and, and things like that. And remember, if you like what you heard, Follow us on your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review. It really helps to spread the word so others can learn about true soul healing. All right, dear listeners, I wish you all the best and I'll catch you next time. Bye.